electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, the Nasdaq is coming off record highs. Uh, Fang's been on a roll this week. Can anything stop the tech rally? Tom Lee is going to weigh in today. We're going to talk some cyber cash as Google and Microsoft shell out billions after visiting the White House. And then later, is Joe Rogan losing some influence thanks to Spotify? A reporter behind that story joins us this hour as well, John. Yeah, and a flurry of cloud companies reporting results last night, including Snowflake, revenue topping analyst expectations more than doubling, up 104% year over year. The loss of an adjusted four cents per share was smaller than expected. Comments from management upbeat. They raised full year guidance for the second time. CEO Frank Slootman joined Jim Cramer on Mad Money last night, and here's what he had to say about the company's growth strategy. One of the great things, you know, about the Snowflake business is, you know, we don't have to do, you know, large acquisitions like so many companies do to build runway in front of their companies. We are in, not just in a very large market, we're in a market that is dynamically unfolding in front of us, right? There's, there's, there's no telling how large this thing will get, and we're, we're just here to enable it to the absolute best of our, our abilities, and you're, you're seeing the effects of that um, in our reporting like a revenue snowball rolling downhill, perhaps. A year ago, Snowflake was one of the hottest new public listings, but the gains were front-loaded, and the stock has not outperformed the broader markets in 2021. Most of its gains for the year came in the past few hours. The other big player, of course, Salesforce, they beat on the top and bottom lines in Q2. The company also raising guidance after the completion of its $27.7 billion acquisition of Slack. They are doing M&A. Uh, unlike other businesses warning of a slowdown due to rising COVID cases, Salesforce, one of the many cloud companies that are benefiting, CEO Mark Benioff saying, I don't think the Delta variant will be material to our business. If anything, it only accelerates it. Deirdre, we, we've seen this again and again, thinking back to Microsoft earnings, to Amazon uh, and mm-hmm. the cloud gains there. The Delta variant seems to have businesses relying on software for flexibility. Yeah, continuation of what we saw throughout the pandemic continuing. A lot of the call for CRM last night focused on the Slack acquisition, which you mentioned. And, you know, some have been critical of all of Salesforce's deal making, especially when Benioff suggested that maybe he was done. And then he acquired Slack for more than $27 billion. I thought they did a good job of explaining it, though. COO Brett Taylor talked about how MuleSoft, the integration there was how you actually collect the data. Tableau is how you see and understand it. And Slack is how you act on it. And I think they called it Slack on Slack, Carl. They're actually using it. They used it to close the Slack deal and they're using it to close other deals and increase sales overall. 
Uh, it's fascinating, and we've been talking about this with everyone from uh, Salesforce to ServiceNow, John. Uh, the enterprise is having to reinvent. There's just simply no doubt about that, having to plan for multiple contingencies, depending on how the variants uh, hit us, and that's going to result in a reinvention of, the, uh, of their IT framework in general. It kind of runs into the other story of the day, which is semis, and whether or not that recovery, that uh, attempt to get back an equilibrium on supply demand, whether that gets pushed out into 2022. Maybe we talk talk about that later on the hour. Yeah, let's. And the trick for investors is to figure out uh, which of these companies is going to be able to grow fastest uh, and more continually. So sticking with that, Salesforce and the big week overall for enterprise software earnings. Let's bring in Alex Zukin, Wolf Research Managing Director. Alex, we've seen a couple of phases of results from enterprise software companies, a lot of it driven by cloud uh, adoption and the ability of businesses to get access to a wide range of computing power and intelligence. Um, Who's doing the best and why? Uh, I think Microsoft is is definitely leading the pack here. I mean, I think Microsoft has become part of the fabric of uh, companies' products, experiences, services. I think you're seeing companies like Amazon and Google do the same. Uh, And I think Salesforce, which reported last night, I mean, honestly, I don't know that I've ever witnessed a time where the demand environment for Salesforce, where the relevance of that category has been greater than it is today. So um, when you look at the M&A strategies playing out, uh, Salesforce in its latest big M&A went with Slack. Microsoft is going more vertical uh, into AI and kind of the the medical space with its most recent acquisition that it uh, is pursuing What makes the most sense and what does it say about what investors should be paying attention to uh, as we try to figure out who's going to have the best results going forward? It's a great question, John. For Salesforce, I think right now it's a question of uh, integration, digestion and pulling the future forward to the present. I think what they're doing with Slack is really interesting. It's an audacious and courageous bet. Uh, It's the bet of the death of the app and the rise of the conversation that every uh, customer will never use Salesforce again and yet always be using Salesforce. Uh, I think Microsoft is doing something very similar with the way that they're uh, talking about Teams as this collaborative fabric uh, for the future of all customer interactions and employee interactions. I think it's super powerful. Uh, and I think it's going to be a growth driver and not just for uh, you know their traditional verticals like financial services and healthcare, but also the public sector. That was actually one of the strongest parts uh, of the earnings call this uh, this past uh, week for uh, for Salesforce, four of their largest deals and the largest deal they ever signed was in the public sector. Alex, looking at Salesforce over 12 months, uh, finally back uh, to being made whole, whereas Microsoft's up 35 or so. I wondered, is the better risk reward at this point to stick with CRM? You know, it's hard, it's hard to pick between them. I think they're both fantastic companies and honestly, great secular growth opportunities. For me, what, what was most interesting out of Salesforce yesterday, I, I've never doubted the growth story. I think the commentary about margins, the commentary about disciplined investing, durable growth, uh, that, that was pretty powerful for me. I think that's something investors have been waiting for for some time. Uh, and I think the new CFO uh, is, is really taking a, a completely different approach um, you know, Mark Benioff talked about her reinventing the operating model, rebuilding it from the ground up. I, I think that's going to be a pretty powerful catalyst as we get into the analyst day later next month. Um, so something I, I'm very bullish on Salesforce throughout through the end of this year. I think it's going to be a great stock. 
Okay, Alex, let me ask you about Microsoft versus Salesforce, increasingly rivals. Now, both Salesforce and Slack have raised antitrust concerns against Microsoft. Do you think that that continues? Are they more or less effective under one umbrella? I think that, you know, there's definitely power in in integration. Uh, I think there's power in having one security model for a lot of the interactions that customers and and employees and, and users have. Um, I think they're both great companies. I think Microsoft has a bit of a different approach. Um, I, I think they're trying to make the products of the future, not just the experiences. Um, with Azure, with similar to what you're seeing out of Amazon and Google, they are the, the actual cost of goods uh, for many companies in retail, for many companies in, in pharma, for many companies in finance. They are the product. Um, you know, Salesforce is... is, is product suites a bit different. They are trying to make the digital experience better, the collection of the data, the collection of all the data points around, you know, a more useful uh, and powerful tool for for growth. So it's a bit different. Again, I I don't think you have to choose between them. I actually think they will both be great stocks. Well, plenty of gas in the tank for enterprise software. Sounds like Alex, thank you. Thank you, Al. Well, let's turn to Box as well. Beat on the top and bottom. Not enough to keep those shares higher this morning, though. They pre-announced numbers earlier this month preparing for a September 9th annual meeting where investors will vote on the company's strategy and management team. Worth watching that stock as Aaron Levy and Box remain locked in a battle with activist investor Starboard Value. And, John, Starboard has repeatedly been frustrated at the pace of change over at Box. However, if we look at that year-to-date chart, which is up on the screen right now, that stock is up 40 percent, outperformed. Uh, Salesforce and Snowflake, the two stocks we were just talking about, and perhaps giving more ammunition to the case for keeping Aaron Levy in place. If they were frustrated at change, there's certainly been some change in the stock price this year. Is that because of the activists? Is it despite the activists, Carl? I don't know. We'll see how the shareholders uh, vote and, and what it seems like to them. Uh, indeed, although one of uh, a number of companies uh, today in the enterprise that uh, did raise guidance. In the meantime, we are continuing to monitor the situation uh, in Afghanistan, getting some comments from Macron in France, and a more full picture of what happened today from the Pentagon. Eamon Javers has the latest. Eamon? More detail on the casualties here, Carl, as well, including uh, potential casualties to U.S. troops. A lot of this detail still coming in, so very early on. And just a caution that uh, initially some of these reports uh, can be a little confusing. But what we're getting right now from Reuters is a U.S. official saying that at least one of the U.S. troops who was injured in that explosion in Kabul was wounded seriously. That's citing initial information. So a caution on that uh, in terms of the extent of this U.S. service person's injuries. But uh, the unfortunate news coming in now from Reuters that uh, this one U.S. service person uh, was wounded seriously. No total yet uh, on Afghan injuries or deaths here uh, in Kabul just outside the airport. But we did see that explosion uh, about an hour or so ago now uh, in Kabul. And that complicates matters dramatically for U.S. forces trying to maintain the evacuation pace and meet that August 31st deadline that the president has imposed of bringing all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan at the same time, trying to bring as many Afghan refugees and allies as possible and as many U.S. citizens as possible. Not entirely clear right now, Carl, how many U.S. citizens remain in Afghanistan who want to get out, but surely the number is greater than zero, and that adds to the complexity uh, for U.S. forces trying to secure that airport and now dealing uh, with a potential bomber out there who might have more to come. Carl, back over to you.
Uh, indeed, and, and Eamon, we should also point out, uh, well, two things. Uh, the White House was scheduled to have a COVID briefing uh, this morning, uh, which has understandably been postponed. And then we mentioned Macron. Um, he says there are 20 buses with French citizens and others that they've been looking to evacuate. Uh, but the confusion and obviously the events of the morning at the airport uh, means they cannot guarantee they'll be successful in evacuating those. So it is not uh, uniformly a U.S. picture, uh, these, these very important evacuations. It's a very chaotic situation with multiple nations of allies, uh, multiple forces inside Afghanistan. Remember, you've got ISIS-K there, which is the offshoot of ISIS, as well as the Taliban. Those two groups are enemies of each other, as well as enemies of the United States, all vying for control in a very limited space here. And we know from reporting in The Wall Street Journal and elsewhere uh, that U.S. intelligence uh, officials have been... Uh, engaged in getting Americans out of Kabul by trying to get around this perimeter area, which is so dangerous, where all those people are coming together against the wall and presenting a target for bombers as well as a threat to the U.S. Marines there on the wall. The idea here is that they're using helicopters to go over the wall into downtown Kabul or locations nearby and collect Americans and others who they're trying to evacuate from the locations where they've been holed up uh, and bring them back to the airport by helicopter. So trying to get out of that sort of bottleneck area, which pre presents a real target uh, for any kind of uh, hostile force that wants to do IED or suicide bomb attacks. Uh, so that's been going on as well as they try to evac all of these people uh, in what is a massive airlift operation uh, in the middle of a deteriorating security situation. A very scary, intense moment here in Afghanistan for the remaining U.S. forces as they try to meet that August 31st deadline, Carl. Uh, just, just a few days away. Uh, Eamon, thank you. We'll talk to you in a little bit as we look for more updates from the Pentagon as well. That's our Eamon Javers. Uh, still to come this morning, cyber stocks are reacting to the president's security summit of this week. We'll talk about that. Plus, 50 years of fintech. The CEO of Paychex will join us next as a big hour tech check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. News of those multiple blasts in Afghanistan this morning did take some uh, out of equities today. Dow was down triple digits a few moments ago. We've recovered just a bit, down 45. S&P still 44.82, John, as it's weighing geopolitics, along with the corporate results that we've gotten today. And, of course, uh, uh, the Kansas City Fed, which will be a story both today and tomorrow. Indeed. And now let's get a gut check on cybersecurity spending and stocks. 
big tech promising some big dollars. At yesterday's White House summit, Alphabet and Microsoft pledged 10 and 20 billion dollars respectively to strengthen U.S. cybersecurity. And Google pledged to train 100,000 Americans in data analytics and IT support. Uh, Apple and Amazon pledged to drive more adoption of multi-factor authentication to protect users. And Amazon plans to offer its AWS employee security awareness training to the public at no cost. A lot of this spending is not brand new, but repackaged for this meeting. And the big four tech companies fairly flat on the news, but they've seen a rally this week. Cyber firms, though, CrowdStrike, Okta, and Zscaler are higher The cybersecurity ETF, CIBR, hit an all-time high this morning for the third consecutive day. Uh, And let's see. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's had quite a run overall, guys. Yep, up 40% this year. Celebrating 50 years of fintech payment processor Paychex ringing the opening bell at the Nasdaq this morning to celebrate its launch in 1971 and IPO in 1983. The company is the number one 401k record keeper in the U.S., taking in $4 billion in revenue this past fiscal year, while competition from the recently listed Paycor and relative newcomers like Square and Gusto are taking aim at the giant. Joining us now, Paychex president and CEO Marty Musi. Marty, Congratulations on the milestone. And it's kind of unbelievable to think that we've had 50 years of fintech disruption when it still seems new. There's still so much innovation in the space. And, you know, as I mentioned in the lead in, you're competing against the likes of Square and others that are using a lot of their data to sell other products. How do you guys stay innovative and relevant over the next 50 years? Well, it is so important. You know, the idea has always been about serving clients and their employees and we're excited that it's really a digital transformation, uh, whether it's on-site or, or distributed workforces. And the idea is to be very flexible and very mobile. You know, we have a five-star mobile app that does everything for employees that they need. You can now, these days, you can talk to Siri uh, or, uh, you know, or Google and ask them, what's your next paycheck? When am I getting paid? And we have a lot of things that, need, that give the flexibility to clients and their employees that are so critically important today. Right, but Marty, you see the newer fintech sort of expanding out. They all want to become sort of the, the money app and do everything. What are you guys looking at? Are you looking at expanding products? The buy now, the buy now pay later space has been extremely hot, and you guys do have a trove of data that you could be using to sell other products. How are you thinking about it? Yeah, we do. We use a, a tremendous amount of our data. Having over 700,000 clients, uh, we have a tremendous amount of data, and we use that to build, uh, to support our clients through data analytics so that they can, uh, a smaller, mid-sized business can have the same power uh, that a large business does as to how they can use that data, how they look at their employees, whether they're going to have retention problems, what do they pay their employees. They really can have the power of our data at their fingertips. And we also have a, a great deal of flexibility. So what you can do, you know, we have an awful lot of pay on demand today where people aren't waiting. Their employees don't have to wait to be paid uh, in a biweekly or a monthly payroll. They can take the pay, especially in a gig economy, immediately. And we're the only company to offer things like real-time payments. Real-time payments means you get your payroll immediately. So if a client calls us and wants to run a payroll today, we can do it as quick as 15 seconds on average uh, that they can get their dollars. So it's being very nimble, very quick, and very innovative. You know, Marty, when I think of you guys, I I think about the number of, and this has been borne out in the data, of people starting their own business in the wake of COVID, leaving an employer, deciding to go out on their own, and in turn, hiring a couple other people. I wonder over time if the number of clients that Paychex has with a small number of employees is going to grow. 
Well, it does. You know, Carl, you know the numbers are up. Over 50 percent brand new business startups over last year. It's incredible during a pandemic. But so many people have left larger businesses and started these small businesses. And it's that it was their time when they wanted to give it a try. And we've seen a tremendous up, up increase in sales based on those small businesses and startups. That fits everything we do. We service one to a thousand employees and some over that. Uh, but that is our niche. And we are continuing to see a lot of startups that then continue to grow, particularly into that 5, 20, or 50, even 50 employees. Uh, Marty, I recently have talked to an extraordinary number of startups that are in the kind of HR um, back office, payroll, uh, and, and benefit space. There's a lot of VC funding going into competing with and disrupting you. From yep. where you sit, how serious is that threat, really? And what are the main tools, whether it is uh, recruiting, uh, whether it is software and AI, th that you think are going to allow you to stay in a dominant position? Well, I think when you think of the size, you know, we have over 200 uh, compliance analysts that just study every regulatory change that's out there, whether it's federal, state, or, legal, or local. And we've been around and we have the data that can help our clients. A lot of smaller startups, while they are well-funded, cannot necessarily have the expertise that we have. We have over 650 HR generalists that will not only handle your issues through AI and automated online, but can also be a personal uh, help to you behind the scenes. And today, with the way COVID is, with the requirements of what's my a vaccination policy, how do I bring people back to work, how do I handle their benefits, those needs are not just a quick online answer many times. They need online support, but also backstop with somebody available 24 hours a day to help you. We have that. Marty, it sounds like Paychex is staying focused on payroll versus the trend that we've seen from newer fintechs and trying to do more and more financial services. Is that a correct read? No, not really. Uh, you know, while payroll is certainly how we started 50 years ago, uh, payroll has really become, you know, less than half of our business today. Our revenues, more than half our revenues come from the HR outsourcing, our retirement business. We're the number one retirement plan administrator. We're a 30th largest insurance agency in the country, and we're one of the largest HR outsourcers serving uh, nearly 2 million worksite employees. So we're very much about HR outsourcing and the technology and innovation to be able to provide those services. Well, Marty, congrats again on the milestone. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you okay. again soon. Marty Misi, Paychex CEO. Yeah, and yet another chip M&A deal in the works. So Western Digital reportedly in talks to buy Japan's Kyoshio Holdings. The proposed deal valued north of $20 billion could close as early as September. Western Digital CEO David Gockler expected to run the combined company if the deal goes through. Both Western Digital and Kyoxia declined a request for comment. Shares of Western Digital initially jumped on the report, but have since come back down. Um, you know, I don't, I, I think with the semiconductor demand picture looking the way it has, Carl, you know, we've talked here on Tech Check repeatedly about companies trying to um, reposition themselves through M&A and other means for the next phase, this could be yet another instance of that. Uh, yeah, D, there's a story on the wires today. The supply chain crunch that was meant to be temporary looks like it will last well into next year. And that's going to challenge some of those who were looking for equilibrium later in Q4.
Yeah, absolutely. Consolidation has been a huge theme, but getting these deals across the finish line lately has proven a bit of a challenge. I know we talk about NVIDIA and ARM uh, all the time, but that has been delayed. Meanwhile, on this theme, chip makers, they are upping pressure on manufacturers as the global shortage rages on, as Carl mentioned. The Wall Street Journal reporting that TSMC plans to raise prices on its most advanced chips by 10 percent with less advanced chips like those for cars to cost about 20 percent more. Apple, one of TSMC's largest customers, may have to hike up the price of the upcoming iPhone 13. As a result, the report says the mobile devices use advanced microprocessors made in TSMC foundries. John. Yeah. Well, Apple's got a lot of options besides raising prices and a lot of uh, power to influence how much it has to pay for chips as well. So I guess we will see uh, whether that report bears out. Still to come on Tech Check, a conversation with Facebook's head of Messenger. Plus, Funstrat's Tom Lee is after the break with the Nasdaq coming off another record high. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Resetting near the bottom of the hour here. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Ford, and Julia Borston. Fang stocks and big tech have had a big week already, as you know. We're going to talk about that in a moment with Tom Lee. Plus, Julia's got the head of Facebook Messenger. But first, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here is the latest from Afghanistan. The Pentagon now confirming two explosions outside the Kabul airport. One at the Abbey Gate and another at or around the nearby Barron Hotel. The Pentagon calling it a complex attack that resulted in a number of U.S. and civilian casualties. Taliban sources telling NBC News that the suicide attack killed 13 people, including children. U.S. intelligence officials say that it appears that the attacks were carried out by ISIS-K. That's an ISIS splinter group that is considered to be an adversary of the Taliban. And a Kabul emergency hospital says that there are more than 30 wounded from the airport explosions and that six people died on the way to the hospital. Of course, much more to come throughout the day. So stay tuned for breaking news coverage of the latest developments from Afghanistan. For now, I'll send it back to you, Carl. Right, thank you very much. As we said earlier, FANG stocks have rallied over the last week as the Nasdaq did notch its 30th record close of the year. Our next guest said to buy everything about 10 days ago. <laughs> He's still saying it. Joining us today, CNBC contributor Tom Lee of Fundstrad Global Advisors. Tom, always good to have you back. You have definitely kept your head uh, about you uh, through Delta and it's paid off. But as Rahel points out, geopolitics are a larger part of the conversation. Looks like we're finally there on, on taper. These supply crunches are not going away. Um, is any part of you looking for more chop rather than less? Uh, Carl, that's a great question. All the things you've described are a wall of worry. And markets actually do better when investors are worried and hesitant because it is keeping cash on the sidelines and therefore stocks can react to positive news. I think that's the situation we're in today. Um, you know, we wrote about it earlier this week, but if you look at money market funds raised by both retail institutions. Retail investors were raising cash in August at a pace you haven't seen at all in 2021. 
And then if you look at things like sentiment, they, they got more bearish than any time in 2021. So I think we are definitely in a risk-on environment. It's healthy to see this wall of worry, but it's also important for things to be on the margin better. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. I wonder where you are, too, on, on 2022 S&P earnings. Uh, BAML today uh, does $215. They say we see downside risk to consensus EPS amid rising inflationary pressure. Dan Niles, a uh, friend of the show, says he's looking for multiple rate hikes in 22. Why is that not a liability if it plays out? Uh, those are definitely things to keep an eye on. Inflation can be both earnings friend and a headwind. Uh, and then, as Dan's talking about, there, there are other sort of external events that could take place. But when I look at 2022... Um, I think people are overstating the risk from labor cost because uh, where we're seeing inflation is really in the travel and leisure space where that might be 25 percent of employment, but it's less than 7 percent of labor income. So so there can be inflation there, but it's actually very mild on an aggregate. And from an earnings perspective, I'm surprised BAML's number is so low. I mean, I think if you look at the operating leverage talked about by companies today, S&P earnings next year could be as high as 240. So I think it could be way above consensus. And, and of course, tech is going to be a big part of that. Uh, Tom, you're bullish on crypto. You're bullish on the overall markets. What would change your mind? Would it be a big rally and a shift in sentiment so that more people got as positive as you are? Uh, that's right, John. If, uh, if short interest were to collapse and people were bullish, then we know that a lot of the firepower is used up on markets. But I would guess that we'd be at much higher levels if that was the the case. And I think if if COVID and sort of our comfort level on that deteriorates so that the economy faces downside risk, I, I think that's a headwind. But so far, uh, it really looks like the soft surveys, like the sentiment, have dropped a lot more than the actual data, which means people have overreacted in the market side to COVID. Mm. Thomas Sierra, I always have to ask you about Bitcoin after touching 50,000. It's below 47K this morning. What's the next catalyst for the crypto ecosystem at large? Uh, well, there's a lot of, I mean, foremost, I'd say Bitcoin and digital assets have really performed admirably in the face of what looked like a pretty big crackdown from China and from U.S. So I think there's true underlying resilience. And of course, Bitcoin now, I think, is technically recovered to some key levels. I think that there's quite a lot of catalysts into urine because, you know, number one, it, it looks like products like NFTs, which really do improve the usefulness of crypto, have, have grown in adoption. I mean, some of the numbers are really impressive and you're starting to see some crossover investing. And then more importantly, I think that, you know, when you look at outside the U.S., crypto is your risk on assets. So I think that the fact that both China equities and crypto are rallying shows you that outside the U.S., there's actually a risk on appetite as well. Two more questions from me, Tom. I think one of your best calls of the year was really nailing that bottom on the 10-year yield around 120. Uh, we did have a few different desks this year now bring in their year-end forecast. Uh, B of A today goes from 190 to 155. I wonder where you are on the 10-year, if you think that chart's going to continue to go up to the upside. And then also um, uh, on CHOP, or, or on, in August, you said seasonality made it difficult to be a hero. And I wonder if that narrative changes as we work our way into the fall. Uh, yeah, both good questions. And uh, on the yield, I've, we've been watching it closely. It does seem to me that uh, economic outlook is actually more resilient than consensus. I think people overreacted to like 
you know, the consumer sentiment surveys. And so I, we think there is upside to the yield. And I think the one five might even be low. And then with regard to CHOP, uh, I, I think that the move in the 10-year, along with the drop in the VIX, and then now with oil recovering pretty steadily, and now we're getting into September, which historically is actually a great month for equities when you have a strong first half. I think that the sort of chop is ending. I think September should be a really strong period for markets. So, you know, I'd expect a rally at least for the next six weeks, a pretty strong rally. Oh, interesting. Finally, you've done, as we've said before, a lot of great high frequency work on on Delta and COVID in general. Uh, You've been highly attuned to the rollover that we're starting to see in the South. Do you worry about um, a surge in the North as kids go back to school? Uh, yes, Carl. I mean, I think one of the big risks is the transmissibility of Delta. Um, I think in the Northeast, it does look like schools are really pushing towards either restricting activities for those who aren't vaccinated or trying to use some sort of mitigation measures. I think that should help. But, you know, back to school is uncertain. But if we look at the Southeast last year, there wasn't much mitigation taking place and there wasn't really a back to school surge in the Southeast. So I, I'm somewhat hopeful that this what we're seeing is a peak of Delta now across almost 18 states, maybe 20 now, uh, is really the last surge we'll see for the year. Yeah. Well, the governor of Illinois uh, just a few moments ago announced a statewide indoor mask mandate regardless of vaccination status. So maybe the mitigation will be different uh, in in parts of the country uh, closer to where we are. Tom, appreciate it always very much. Thanks. Yeah, great to see you. A couple of other earnings movers to keep your eye on this morning. Pure storage up big, nearly 15 percent, while Autodesk goes the other way down more than 9 percent. Disappointing guidance, the story there. More tech check after this quick break. Facebook Messenger turns 10 years old, and Julia sat down with the head of that business for Facebook. Julia, great wide-ranging conversation with Stan Chudnovsky. Well, there is a lot to talk about because it has been a decade since Facebook launched as Messenger tools, which, of course, have expanded from text to voice and video. Messenger is, of course, now integrated into Facebook as well as Instagram so people can communicate across the three apps. And it's in the process of integrating with WhatsApp as well. Now, Messenger is increasingly focused on businesses. More than 3 million advertisers are using click-to-message ads to direct people to start messaging with a business. And over the last year, total daily conversations between people and businesses on Messenger and Instagram grew by more than 40%. Messenger chief Stan Chudnovsky says those click-to-message ads are among Facebook's fastest-growing businesses. And now they want to work on ways to bring more commerce into the platform as well. When you're tapping an ad and then you're ending up in a conversation with business, very often that results in a transaction. That transaction somehow, sometimes happening uh, outside of our ecosystem. But we are definitely working on different ways to make it easier for people to complete those transactions right inside the thread. And that's probably how it's going to be more and more happening uh, going in the future. 
with Messenger's expanding scope and integration. I asked about the FTC's push to break up the company, the FTC alleging that Facebook has limited competition from other messaging tools. Take a listen. We definitely uh, seen a lot of opportunity for competition around us, but we also are honestly, especially in U.S., very small compared to, for example, iMessage. In fact, all we want is actually enable more competition when it comes down to the operating systems and be able to compete with other messaging apps that are bigger than us on equal footing. Tudovsky's comment about the size of Apple's iMessage builds on Facebook's ongoing complaint against Apple for enabling people to opt out of ad targeting. And then when I asked about whether it would be even possible for the FTC to break up Facebook and spin off Messenger, he said that they are compliant with the laws and just working to give consumers what they want. And in the future, he says what they want will be a bridge between the metaverse and our 2D and 3D worlds. People are going to spend more and more time in VR, but people are also going to spend more and more time communicating in 2D. And what's going to be needed is bridge from 2D to 3D. I should be able to be on my phone, which I'm probably going to be using even more uh, uh, going forward, to be able to send a message to somebody who is in VR right now. And that person in VR needs to be able to accept that message, see that message, react to this message, probably message back to me, and I should be able to receive it on my device. Mark Zuckerberg has talked so much about his interest in building Facebook into the metaverse, and it sounds like Messenger will give people in this world a way to interact with people in the metaverse. Fascinating stuff. You can find the whole interview with Stan Chudnovsky on cnbc.com slash techcheck. John? Awesome, Julia. I don't know about this metaverse thing. I don't know if they're going to be able to get me to say it. But I, I think the key question on Messenger for investors is, is Messenger strategically the evolution of the like button? Is it Facebook's way to get around some of these platform privacy restrictions that would limit that holy grail of total attribution and then being able to connect ads to transactions? Well, I think it's already going in that direction, John. And I think the reason I wanted to play that specific soundbite about payments is because what they've done recently is connect consumers with businesses. You have a question, you have a problem, you don't want to wait on the phone for a customer service. You interact on Messenger with a bot. You ask your question, you say, can I find this in my size? Where is the closest store location? And you can really get those answers in real time. But what I think what he pointed out in that soundbite is this key piece of taking that to the next level. Not only are they going to let you ask questions, let you get some information on Messenger, now it's easier to click through to maybe a company's website and buy, but increasingly they want you to be able to make that purchase within Facebook itself. They have Facebook payments. They have ways to transact. And increasingly, it's not just going to be about linking out to buy things that you maybe found on Facebook, but doing everything within that Facebook platform. And of course, the ability to do that and remove any of that friction that makes it more valuable for advertisers. And that, of course, is Facebook's bread and butter. Yeah, detour, but they get the data. Julia, thanks. Uh, Morgan Stanley is bullish on Zoom ahead of next week's earnings. Upset to overweight. Read out why on CNBC.com slash pro. And we're back in just a moment.
That confirmation of multiple explosions in Kabul today has definitely suppressed equities. Uh, the Dow is off the session lows, but still down 65. We continue to have one eye on geopolitics, the other on uh, the Fed and tapering. Yields hanging in at 135 has made financials the one sector that is green. We're back in a moment. We continue to monitor the situation in Afghanistan this morning after multiple explosions in the capital city of Kabul. Our Eamon Jabbers joins us this morning, Eamon, as we continue to look for any indication that that August 31st withdrawal deadline would be extended. Yeah, no indication of that right now, Carl, but we are getting an emerging picture uh, of what happened this morning. U.S. officials and foreign officials filling in some details for us. What looks like transpired here are two separate bombing attacks, two suicide bombers at two different locations, as well as gunmen involved in this attack as well, which U.S. officials are calling a complex attack. One at the Abbey Gate, that is the gate of the airport itself. The other one, uh, suicide bomber, apparently at the Barron Hotel. And if you look at a map of the airport, the Barron Hotel is located just blocks away uh, from the airport gate itself. So very nearby, sort of an airport hotel that's right in that same area, also struck uh, in a bombing attack today. Uh, not clear how many casualties there are. The Russian government uh, is reporting now uh, 13 people were killed and 15 wounded. That is from Russian, the Russian foreign ministry. Uh, that is not supported by uh, the U.S. side just yet. So uh, emerging numbers uh, in terms of the scale of the damage of this attack. There's also a report that the U.S., one member of the U.S. military who was injured in this did sustain serious wounds, so we'll uh, be on the lookout for any more information on that. And, Carl, I can tell you, I've just been emailing with a veteran of the U.S. intelligence apparatus uh, who offered some insight into sort of how this is unfolding right now. This veteran, this U.S. intelligence veteran, uh, emailing me that the main concern right now is going to be having effective overwatch over the airport itself, that is drones, helicopters, fighter jets, and others, uh, to make sure that the aircraft on the ground at Kabul airport are going to be able to continue to operate safely at that airport as they have been doing throughout all this, we are told. Uh, this U.S. intelligence official, former U.S. intelligence official, emailing me and saying, I would not keep those aircraft on the ground in Kabul for very much longer, Carl. Eamon, I'll take it back from here. Thank you for the developments. We'll continue to monitor the situation and come back to you. Still to come on Tech Check, Spotify has gone all in on podcasts and now The Verge has an investigation into whether Joe Rogan has lost relevance by going exclusive on the platform. That story is next. Don't go anywhere. An investigation coming out of The Verge yesterday digs into how Joe Rogan's influence might have been stunted by taking his wildly popular podcast exclusively to Spotify. Spotify has attempted to become the top podcast producer in the world. The audio platform has acquired top talent exclusively, penning deals with Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, Dak Shepard, Alex Cooper, and Michelle Obama. But will all that spending pay off? Joining us this morning is the reporter behind the piece, The Verge's Ashley Carmen. Ashley, it's a, it's a fascinating piece, and we're going to watch it just just like we do Howard Stern at XM and a bunch of other 10-pole talent. But can you walk us through some of the data analytics that you pulled to write the story? Yeah. So because Spotify and other podcasting apps don't share data about how their stars are really doing and how many listeners they're reaching, I instead looked at kind of a secondary metric. So how many followers Rogan's guests received after going on the show on Twitter? 
These were for guests with under 500,000 followers, so kind of not the big stars like Elon Musk or Dave Chappelle. And what we found was a 50% reduction in the number of followers they could expect to receive before after he went exclusive. So before they were receiving around 4,000, after they were receiving around 2,000. Ashley, it's Deirdre. Spotify responded. I know they responded to you as well by saying that Twitter as a benchmark lacks credibility because of the presence of bots and perhaps declining engagement due to the reopening of the economy and COVID. Did you account for that in the investigation? And what did you find is the main reason behind that decline? Is it something to do with the way that Spotify is putting up these podcasts? Yeah, so I, I believe Twitter has been growing their user base. So I'm not totally concerned about them, like all of a sudden Twitter having a dearth of Twitter users. But I mean, yeah, I, I did my best to try to account for these things. Um, my my best way to attribute this, and again, this is just sort of my supposition, my theory, is that it's because he's Rogan's now exclusive. I mean, he used to be huge on YouTube, which has this very powerful algorithm and discovery mechanism. And Spotify doesn't have that. It's it's behind the wall. So I would imagine that Rogan lost some listeners with his move. Ashley, what, what I saw, great piece. When I looked at these numbers, I thought, well, that isn't that bad. I mean, because when you switch from broad to exclusive, I would imagine as a creator, you do expect to lose some of that broad influence and you exchange that. For money, right? I mean, that, that's part of what you're getting right. up front. And I, I guess we'll have to see whether that level of engagement, if it is narrower, that he is getting on Spotify and the multiple different programs and offerings from him that they have, whether that will grow over time, because that's what would make it a good investment from Spotify's perspective, right? Yeah. So for Spotify, 50 percent, like, so we're going with 50 percent, let's say, made it over and 50 percent were lost. 50 percent is still good. I mean, they can sell ads against Rogan's show now. That's huge. They have that audience that maybe wasn't there before is now on Spotify. I think it just being, brings up a bigger question of what do these exclusives do? Is this something that this company should continue to pursue? Or is there a better strategy that might work? Like, could you put an hour of Rogan's show everywhere and then say, if you want the second hour, come to Spotify exclusively? Could you maybe now that he's been exclusive for a while, go wide and see how that broadens Rogan's reach? I mean, I think it just makes us think about what the strategy could look like in the future. Uh, indeed. And that has been a debate on the street for a long time. Uh, as you probably know, the degree to which Spotify has been investing and doubling down on podcasts uh, over one year. Uh, shares are down about 20 percent. Uh, fascinating, Ashley. Appreciate it very much. And look forward to, uh, for those who haven't read it, On the Verge. That's Ashley Carmen uh, with that piece on Joe Rogan. Uh, we're, overall, we're watching the markets, guys. Um, Cobble's obviously been a big story and will continue to weigh perhaps on equities as the Dow's down about 68. We'll keep in mind that Powell speaks tomorrow. And Bullard did say, guys, that he does expect Powell to give us a pretty good assessment of where we are in the taper discussion uh, tomorrow when he speaks. And bear in mind that a lot of this is happening on overall light volume uh, as we go into the final days of August with that jobs number a week away from tomorrow. Uh, let's get to the half with Tyler Matheson. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.